I want to personally thank all of you for tuning in to our first episode of the AFT Construction Podcast. Our goal each week is to not only better the sound and quality of each episode, but also bring content to help all businesses and all industries. Our guest today is JJ Levinsky with Blue Wave Construction, and we're super excited to be discussing business organizations, startups, and what makes a company successful. So we are here today. This is Brad Levitt with AFT Construction on the AFT Podcast. And my special guest today is Mr. J.J. Levinsky. And J.J. is president of Blue Wave General Contracting. And it's actually a fun little intro. You know, welcome, J.J., to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So uh, J.J. and I, you know, we've uh, gained this mutual respect for each other. So although we're non-compete, we're different industries, we've really respected how each other does business and the reputation in town. And uh, you know, we've developed this friendship and meeting in the minds because JJ has a great background in business, uh, building companies, making people accountable. And I, I felt that he was a great add to the podcast. And we've had this great friendship and really admire each other. So, JJ, with that said, welcome. We're glad to have you. Glad to be here, Brad. So, let's kick this off. You've, as I alluded, you know, you've had this background of companies and you've built companies. So, in your experience, what makes a com- company successful? The people. <laughs> so, how do you find good people? Because here's here's the issue we have, and I think most builders have this. How do you find good labor? How do you find good people? How do you train them? How do you get those systems in place? So, where do you find good people? Um, I, I think it comes from from us. Um, and I, without sounding conceited or arrogant, it, we have to drive the passion of what what our goal is. So. For instance, I've always based the, the culture is first, and it has to be that like servant leadership type role. Um, if I'm passionate about something, then the people will, will follow me, not because of the what we're doing, but the how we're doing it. I think that's always been the key. And so if you can just portray that, that passion and that culture, then those good people will follow you because really that's what they're seeking too, but too often they're in a corporate culture where it's bottom line, top line, and they don't, they don't see the bigger picture, and that is the customer advocacy. I mean, that's what we're always doing at the end of the day anyway. We just monetize that. You do it, I do it. And I think that's the key. You know, When we look at our peers, those that we also look up to, that's what they're doing as well. So how do you, how do you build a customer culture or a, a company culture? I mean, what are you know, different things that business owner and entrepreneur, those are listening to this podcast, what should they focus on to create that culture? Oh, that's a wide one. Um, <laughs> I think being a good listener from your customers first. Um, underst- well, maybe it kind of coincides with understanding what your lane is. I, I love that Geico commercial, you know, stay in your lane, bro. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's always funny, but I think we can all be in more than just one lane. Um, but also understand that you can only do maybe two or three things really well. Mm-hmm. And then how do you always stay on that core nucleus and then monetize different value-added propositions off of that? Um, I think that's the one thing I always ask is what's the value proposition? If we're not offering that, whether that's our team, uh, our ancillary team, you know, whether that's our subcontractors and vendors, supply chain, whatever, if you're not constantly asking that question and looking at that kind of internally and externally, um, it'll come it'll come to the surface really quickly because then you're just commoditized beyond that. So I think that value proposition is is always the key. And then just getting passionate about that. And so then the people just kind of follow. I guess it's hard for me right now to talk about it in, in the context of being black and white because I've been living it so 
passionately probably for about 15 years now that it just comes kind of organically to me. And so I just wake up every day and just kind of exude it out of my pores. So you asking me to put it in tangible terms. Yeah, it's, it's like, how it's, do you do it's, that? It's kind of, it's kind of awkward. But well, well, I think what you're alluding to, JJ, which is interesting, you talk about leadership, right? I think any company that's successful, they have driven leaders that are passionate about what they do. I mean, how can you be successful if you're not passionate about what you do? And, you know, there's, you know, I love listening to podcasts and different things. And it was funny because uh, uh, Jimmy Johnson, who is the coach of the Cowboys, right? He was asked, well, define leadership. And he's like, I don't know. He's like, but I could tell you a good leader because some leaders are really loud. Some leaders are passive and lead by example. Some leaders, you know, it's just have this confidence. And there's different traits that each leader has. But it's, I think you've alluded to that. It's how, how do you instill that passion that you have into your employees, into your culture? Um, so... Well, it's, it's, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but it's walk the talk. Mm-hmm. They will follow you much more for your examples than your words. Yeah. I think you know that. I know that. And again, we look back to our peer group, those that we admire and aspire to be like, that typically is what we follow, right? And, and it's interesting. You pointed out being a good listener. I think most companies that are successful, you know, that leadership, that leader who's run the company, if they're a good listener, if they're listening, if they're seeing the signs of things that are going good, of things that maybe disgruntled employees. You know, the Wall Street Journal talks about that a lot, about, you know, good leaders are good listeners, right? So how have you become, I mean, how do you become a good listener? I mean, how do you even learn that attribute? Well, for me, that was not easy, and it still isn't easy. Um, I'm sure you have a wonderful wife like I do. <laughs> I do. She's they'll, uh, she will tell me that that's probably my biggest weakness. Mm-hmm. I often... Uh, do the hearing and not the listening. And so um, I probably have to work at that out of the hardest out of all the attributes of trying to be a leader. Turning, taking that and then processing it quickly becomes supernatural to me. It's slowing down the process to be the good listener. But the one thing that I um, that helps me circumvent that is if I'm face-to-face, the body language thing, I can read that instantaneously. Um, just something, maybe you're blessed with it, some of us are, some of us aren't. So if given the chance to be face-to-face, I can do a much better job of gathering that information and reading that body language, whether that's a client, a subcontractor, you know, anything like that. And so um, I just think that helps tremendously. And so I'm kind of breaking that or taking your question and kind of blowing it up a little bit broader. Mm-hmm. Is Listening is more than just the, the audio part. It's everything else body language, you know, all those different Eye things. Contact. Yeah, you, you hit yeah. all the senses. Yeah. Um, so Even to, repeating what they're saying, maybe writing it down, you know, taking those notes for future contacts, right? Yeah. So I, I think, again, I think we got off a little bit on, or off tangent on that, but, but just taking that into kind of more of a holistic viewpoint helps. Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, when you were talking about listening, it reminded me of the experience. And, you know, when I was young in my career and we actually had just first started you know, AOT construction, um, there was a mentor I had and he was actually a client, similar to you, JJ, someone that I hit it off with. We, you know, we had shared a lot of business knowledge and he was a client. We did a remodel for him. So we did his project. I was actually at this time, the superintendent, cause we were small and growing. And it was funny cause after he said, Brad, can I take you to lunch? And I'm like, sure. You know, I've never done that with a client. And we sat there after lunch and he said, Brad, can I give you some advice? And I said, sure. You know, and this is, you know, and he was great about it. And he just said, look, 
one thing that I noticed you lacked, like you did this, this, and this good, but here's a couple things to work on. And one of them was site cleanliness. And he said, you know, here's a couple little things, A, B, and C. And it was interesting because there's a few ways to take that. I could have been upset, but we've actually made that our mantra, right? So we now, since that day, site cleanliness has been a driver. And I had no idea, you know, how that would help us be more successful as a company. And I'm sure you've had experiences well, like that. Well, kudos to you because that's one of the main reasons I sought you up years ago. Was <laughs> I think I was watching you on social media and I was like, wow, that guy's got an awesome uh, clean job site. And it, it went after one of my own passions. So I think that's funny. So let me ask you along Sorry. those lines. No, it's funny because, you know, we talk about business. We talk about how can you be a better leader. Um, and one thing that's toughest construction is, you know, it's like, what is the construction industry lacking? I mean, you've been in construction your whole life. You're very seasoned, JJ. So what what are some things you've seen lacking that we could better as contractors? Um, just understanding our bigger role. Um, if there was one knock on maybe even you and I in our earlier days or, or looking at it, again, in, a, in an industry-wide format, it would be we're too myopic. You know, we're too contractor-focused. Yeah, we don't look so define that a little bit. Like when you say myopic and contractor focused, like what is it that we're doing, you know, that's that is myopic? We still concentrate too much on the bricks and mortar, and we look at it that that is paramount to construction. It is, but that's our currency. Mm-hmm. It's not the whole equation. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I use in my speech, if you will, when when asked this question, and in, in again in different contexts, it's, um, you know, just looking at how. If there's something that's in one of those lanes that you feel comfortable in, provide that to the, your customer, and then again figure out the monetization later. Um, it'll it'll ebb and flow. Uh, you'll you'll figure it out. I'll give you a great example. Um, for those of you listening, uh, I'm a seven-year transplant from the Midwest in the Minneapolis market, and I remember uh, I can't put it into years, but Ryan companies who mm-hmm. are now in you know they've been in Phoenix for a while. I remember back in the Minneapolis market when everyone looked at Ryan as, why are those real estate guys trying to be contractors? <laughs> yeah. Well, now, look at them now. Who's mm-hmm. laughing now? They are. Because they figured out a way that that's what the customers wanted, and they didn't pay attention to what their peer group was saying about them as, hey, you scummy real estate guys, you can't be a contractor like us in the big boy market. Well, again, so use that as an example. So explain that. So what was different about Ryan's approach? I mean, if they're realtors, brokers, what did, what do you think are some things that they offered, you know, to be more customer service or more customer savvy, you know, to the end user? Well, I, again, I, I can't speak uh, intimately about their organization. I yeah. just know enough on a broad-based stroke that, you know, they looked at it as instead of just being the GC, yeah. let's get further out front. Let's be the capital But it's bringing solution. value. Yeah. I think they brought value yeah. to the end user. <clears throat> we will buy the land. We will develop the land. We mm-hmm. will build the buildings. And then we'll be the lessor. You'll be the lessee versus let's just have this general contractor owner, yeah. you know, guaranteed max price contract. Yeah. That, you know, is so it's more turnkey, right? Yeah, and, exactly. and I think you're learning that. Like any company that's successful or maybe is starting to be an outlier, if you will, it's bringing value, right? It's not just... Hey, here's a brick and mortar. Here's what we do. We're here for a career. It's no. Here's the value we can bring. Here's the different things to think about. Here's client portals. Here's communication. You know, site cleanliness, whatever, to bring value where they know that you're vested in them, right? You're looting. Well, and what what is more critical than money right now, Brad? For you, um, time. Okay, right. Well, every consumer out there will answer that almost the same way. Mm-hmm. 
So if you can give them three solutions while you're while they're only coming into you for one or two, you just made their life a whole lot easier. And trust me, the monetization of it is not going to offend them because they're going to have to pay for it somewhere. So if they can just be in that limited time with you, with me, and you can give them two or three things when they only were coming in looking for one, you just made their day, right? And in your overhead structure, you can probably give them two or three things. So that's what I think that, you know, getting back to the core question here is, what's the, what's the you know, the industry lacking? It's that, um, what's the word, the opportunity growth, if you will, um, and, and just taking that and capitalizing on it so that we're, we don't have to be entrepreneurial, but just look at the upside of the potential in the conversation or in the room. Um, I thought of another example, uh, again, and we can use a, a local company, and again, not pitching them or, mm-hmm. or, or endorsing them or anything, but um, VW Connect or VW Digs or whatever. Yeah. As I've watched them work with the tracker production builders, look at how now they come in and from the street to the house, they're putting in the power, the water, the sewer, all in, you know, let's dig one or two trenches and be done and just, boop, it's a done deal versus, what was it, just a few years ago? That was three trenches, how many inspections, how many this, how many that. And it's happening later, typically, because one thing I'll say the VW Dig does, and I know we're getting some shout out here, is, you know, having worked with them, they'll come in and, you know, you're forming the house and they're setting your SES electrical panel. So now, instead of when the framers are on site, you have light power on the job, so you can get that inspected. You know, you have water there, so, you know, compressor generators, the cost, the noise, they can just hook up right there. They're good to go. You don't have, you know, those ancillary costs. And then you're not, you know, during drywall phase trying to dig and trench as you're trying to get streets, and it's amazing. But if we go back and talk to their leadership, was that a strategic plan on their part? I highly doubt it. They listened. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was our previous one. Yeah. And they just figured out a way to monetize that and make it a solution for we bring all value. Yeah, they if you bring value, then in the end it will monetize itself. Yeah. So with that said, so you know, as you're building a company, okay, so we have the passion, we've created that passion, we've created a company culture. You know, we're looking at ways to bring value. How do you reduce inefficiencies in a company? I mean, what have you done, whether it be employees, subcontractors? How do you reduce inefficiencies? Oh, communication. It all starts <clears throat> with communication. Um, uh, I've probably been accused of over-communicating to the point of, um, without micromanaging though, I, I think it's setting expectations and then being able to get out of the way. And I think that goes both internally and, and externally. Um, I think we, you've, you've probably been there too where you're sitting down with a, a customer talking about you've now signed the contract and then how are you going to deliver on this? But setting those stern expectations of this is what we're going to do this is what our expectation of, is, of you is. And this is how we're going to communicate that. In other words, it can't be one-sided. It has to be how, how do you, how does that ebb and flow work in the communication style? Um, I, don't, I don't like focusing on the CYA and all the documentation. I think you should build that into your processes, but don't let that consume the mm-hmm. process itself. Because there's still people, right? Exactly. There's that people factor that it's not just pen and ink, right? You have to build those relationships because at the end of the day, you know, to be to be successful, we're relying on other people. And if I could pick up the phone and say, "Hey, JJ," and you're going to respond right away because we have that relationship, that's going to go a lot further, right? right? Than just the CYA stuff. And I think we're all getting sucked into this technology in a good way, but I also in a bad way. And I don't mean to sound like the old the old <laughs> fart in a room, if so to speak. Um, but I think you've seen it as well, Brad. I go back 
15, 20 years, I remember when Primavera was out and we were all using it for our scheduling platforms. Mm -hmm. And yet we started looking at the utilization rates of that software and it was like less than 5%. And yet we were forking over all this money and our staff and our team was using so little of it and yet we were just forcing it down their throats. You have mm -hmm. to do this and you have to do this. And every time we turn around, there's another app that we should be using for everything. And I kind of put caution to that every now and then saying, remember to still listen, communicate, and reach out to your customers. Don't hide behind the technology. Um, I just see that too often. I'm sure you get the sales calls all the time like I do. Hey, we got the next best thing. Okay, well, how is that different than what I saw five months ago? And the, the delta that I'm seeing and the increase in some of that, I don't think... I don't think the arbitrage is worth it for the time of the owner again. Does that make sense? It does. Well, I think what you're, you know, a point that you're making, at least the way I'm understanding it, is that <clears throat> I've often heard the, the theory, you know, emotional bank account, right? So there's just like any bank account, we make deposits, you know, we have withdrawals, you know, and, and so as you're communicating with the customer, you know, it's that communication, that face-to-face, -face, being in front of them, being with your employees, you're building, you're making those deposits, that emotional bank account. You know, and it's a lot easier if you are picking up the phone and you're texting or you're meeting for lunch and you're building that relationship instead of just, uh, you know, check in, check out like an app to-do list, if you will. You know, there's that relationship side of everything we do. And I think that's going back to starting a company. One of the challenges we've had is, you know, for the younger generation is helping them understand that it's not just all texting anymore. <laughs> yeah, those are great. But did you pick up the phone and make a phone call? Yeah. Have you talked to him today? Have you found out, you know? And so I'm sure you've seen that evolve in your age and career, you know, as that mentality's changed? I have. And again, I'm more on the phone call, email, text, I would say priority. Mm -hmm. And so maybe call me old school. I've tried to adapt more to texting as if that's the thing. But I get, I guess the key is to, again, slow down, listen to each client or each person and figure out what's what's their best avenue and then try to tailor to it. You're not gonna get it perfect, but again, don't be don't be myopic in yourself and go, this is my platform, you have to conform to this, or you will have no customers. I think we both know that. And then back to back to as we give tools to the to to the people, both internally and externally, again, we should be taking surveys or get feedback of is this working? Um, I th I'm sure you've done it, and so have I. Is what we're using effective? If not, let's move on. Just you can fail forward. You can make bad decisions that aren't, you know, macro bad decisions. They can be just be micro bad decisions, and then just pivot, dump it, and move on. Pivot yeah. and iterate to, to what's going on right now. Um, I think you use Builder Trend, right? We do. Yeah, and so I remember back in the old days, we would we started with co-construct and Builder Trend. And uh, I was lucky enough to work with Donnie Wyatt, who was the starter of CoConstruct. We were one of the first customers using that. And that was fun because we were able to help him build the platform on those kind of things. And then later on in life, I was using Build-A-Trend at other companies. And you know now we're using more commercial, um, I guess, specific yeah, software. software. But again, I'm actually finding that our our people and our end users are having more fun and more effectiveness with the simpler softwares, if you will. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, it, it's important for any business, 
you know, to be successful, that as you're going through these apps and as you're working on different aspects to find out what's working and what isn't, right? If it's not working, cut it off. Right. Like train on what works. I mean, you talk about Builder Trend, which is something we use. And so Builder Trend has a hundred different items that we can use, right? But we've we've honed in on six of them, you know, that are really efficient for us and our clients that really work well. And we have each super in my company, you know, he'll sit down and he becomes a specialist in that specific category so that he can now train uh-huh. each of the members, right? So each of them are responsible for one of the categories that allow us to be efficient. And it's interesting because, you know, as a whole, there's things that it does great and there's things that uh, maybe we'll use some other systems to be more efficient. And you, you made this point too, that with subs, you know, at the beginning, we we're trying to force this technology, you know, estimating, you know, you have to be on bill trend. Well, some of our trades... They're not up to speed. And like you said, some of our trades prefer me to call them on the phone. Some prefer a text. Some prefer an email. So it's that listening. It's communication and understanding what speaks to each person. Um, are, what are you finding now with your trades? Are they more responsive to text or phone? Um, just I look at it in the commercial world. To me, it's I don't think it's the delivery method. I think it's the simplicity. They... The biggest feedback I get is, we don't want to receive 27 notifications per day from your job site, JJ. So if you can just limit it to one, we'll cover you. Yeah, one notification with yeah. a list that they can check but out. But let's be honest, both our industries, we blew them up <laughs> to where they would just turn all their... Because their, they can't get work done. Yeah, they can't get work done. At the end of the day, we're in a tangible bricks and mortar business, especially the trades that we rely so heavily on. And it took... it. You know, it took some uh, humility to kind of back up and go, all right, how do I make your life easier? And that gets into a whole other conversation of, you know, how do we build our ecosystems for success around those subcontractors, supply chains, vendors, call them what you want. I mean, at the end of the day, they really are our trade partners. I mean, they're more than that. They're our business partners. They are. We're only as good as they are. And if we can, if there's something that we know that makes them a better asset to us and our end user, then we should just double down and make that for them. Are you going to get burnt? Maybe, but I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that risk all day, every day. Um, and you know, that's, that's a paradigm that, that both our industries have struggled with forever. And we probably will continue to do that. Although with the labor shortage, it's become a lot more, um, prevalent that those that are doing it, their shelf life isn't as long anymore. Yeah. You can't afford to. So how, I mean, because your background, JJ, I mean, you've built schools. And some of these schools, for anyone that understands commercial construction and charter schools, like your time frame is minimal. The year creating the structure, I don't, I still have yet to understand how you guys do it. I mean, how do you even manage that? That process where it's seven days a week and you're four months trying to build a school. I mean, how do you even manage that? Well, it's a little crazy, but um, here's the one thing that in the commercial market, and this may come across as like a bomb for anyone listening, but you take out the emotional part of it. At the end of the day, most commercial construction is done to do what? Produce revenue Mm -hmm. for somebody. I call it a facilities-based solution for a business, nonprofit, whatever. They need a building for something, but usually it's revenue producing. So it becomes a little less emotional than a home, a remodel, um, something back on the personal side. So having said that, it's much easier to get what I call a left brain decision that's not fighting the right brain emotion, if that makes sense. So if you take that out of the equation, you can see how it compresses the time down dramatically. Now you still have to manage 
all the cogs on the wheel, so to speak. And that gets back to, again, building your team just like you would of who are the people that you can trust to help navigate those things faster, smoother, better, um, so you're not bogged down in what I call the traditional process. Well, it's funny because we we do residential commercial. I mean, we're not at le- yeah. your level commercial. We do small commercial. And people always ask, what do you like more, residential commercial? And I just tell them, well, it's different. It is. Right? And because on the residential side, you know, it is. It's a lot more emotional. The clients are involved. They have an opinion how they want their house to look and their finishes. And it's not that the quality's better, you know, in, in some cases maybe, but, but more than anything, it's, it's more emotional. It's more personal. Whereas if I'm doing a restaurant, hey, we got to be open by this date. We have to start serving. We got food. We have, you know, staff to come in, FF&E. You know, we're moving in like it's this complete um, bum rush, if you will, to the finish <laughs> because you got to start turning revenue. Like you have to make that back. So it's just a different mentality. And, and so with that, you know, you had talked about building businesses and how to be efficient and you've hit some points I want to revisit because one of the things you, you said that I wrote down was that the communication, that instead of blowing up your trade with 26 notifications, have one. And I found that even employees like that where, you know, they don't want every time I think of some, something as an owner, calling my super, my project coordinator saying, oh, did you do this? Did you do this? Just maybe at the end of the day, send one email and say, hey, here's 10 things, you know, so as I'm thinking about, write them down and don't just blast it to them. Allow them to be successful in their ways. So, how do how do you do that on a busy schedule where you you things do come up? How do you manage that process? Um, I guess over the years I've tried a number of things. Um, the probably the most effective one is I would build an internal mind map instead of trying to externalize it. Because guys like you and I, we would throw a million spaghetti noodles at the wall if we could. <laughs> And like you said, we, we would just alienate everyone in our team. So luckily I had some mentors and, and peers um, uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago where I learned the hard way that you can't do that. So if you just kind of keep it, I don't care if you're using an app or whatever. And then maybe at the weekly operations meeting or whatever you do, I still believe that a, a weekly meeting is very effective. Um, and then when it's your time, share those ideas and s- see what sticks internally. But I just think that that traction is better because uh, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Brad. You, you just can't dump on everyone whenever yeah. it's, you know, when you have an idea at 1130 at night, I agree. <laughs> don't, don't email everyone. So I don't know how you feel about that or what you do, but I, I'll use different platforms on my phone or on my computer or whatever or just like you and I are doing right now, writing it down old school in mm-hmm. our notepads. Taking notes. and Yeah, and then just kind of cue it into whatever your mental mind map looks like. And when it's appropriate, regurgitate it if it has effectiveness. So it's funny you talk about, you know, when you have an idea at 11 o'clock at night. So one thing, it was interesting because you kind of learn. I, I had worked for a company, and it was a very, you know, the owner was driven, and he's working 24-7, and it kind of instills in us. But... There was a lot of stress created where, you know, we're on vacation and we have to be on our phone and it's after hours we're on our phone. And, it, you know, one of the mistakes I made as a young business owners, I was instilling that in our people. And I started seeing the stress, you know, because they, they weren't able to disconnect. And so we set a policy. I told them, I said, hey, after 5 p.m., emails are off. You don't need to respond to any emails. Because if there's an emergency, you're going to get a phone call or a text. And that's fine. Like, you can respond to that. But, you know, night times, weekends are your time, unless it's an emergency. Enjoy that time. Don't feel you have to respond to an email on the weekend. 
And it's interesting, we, you know, sitting down, we've mentioned that to our clients and our clients have been great. I said, look, this is, you know, we're big on that lifestyle. We're going to be here and be super dedicated. But, and they've been responsive and our team I found has, has, has held it, um, has had a healthier lifestyle yeah. to your point for that. So JJ, real quick. So we've, we've gotten into some of the business stuff. So tell us a little bit of background. I mean, you, what, what's impressed me is just your extensive knowledge, not only about construction, but also, you know, building companies. So tell us your background. What, you know, where did you start? How did you get to where you are today? Well, I'll, I'll, I was very fortunate that um, I think it was about 2000. I was able to, I, I was given an opportunity by an, uh, a man in Minnesota that allowed me to basically come in and kind of run his company. And I say, I say that kind of uh, laughingly tongue-in-cheek because I didn't know how to run a company. I knew how to run well, jobs. Was it a construction company? Yeah, it was construction And did you have a construction background? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I've been running jobs, you know, call it a project, just like you. Yeah. You start off as project manager. Superintendent, all these, yeah, yeah. All the different things. And so I had cut my teeth, and I thought I had done pretty well, and he gave me the chance to really just morph into it. So, um, But his mentoring style was just kind of jury by trial. We'll get thrown to the fire. And I... The funny thing is, is I adapt well to that. I adapted well to that, and was able to just learn from that. Then my next opportunity was at the height of the recession, which I always tell everyone that gets to know me in one to one that that was the best ten year of my life. We started an organization at uh, when everyone else was starting to downsize. We went all in, and uh, all of us, all emotional capital, some personal capital. And we just bet the farm that we were going to create a different construction company. It's amazing. How did you even do that? Because this is a time which we all live through that recession. It's so hard in construction. I mean, what gave you the confidence to do that? People. Um, because everyone that was involved in this organization was burnt out and done with what, again, the paradigm had been or the, the, the MO or the expectation. Again, construction hadn't changed. in, in, in The joke is always that... The construction paradigm hasn't changed since post-World War II. Right. So I think it was just everyone just being fried. And luckily there was five or six of us that all kind of looked at each other and went, let's do this. We have nothing to lose because there's nothing to gain on going down that rabbit hole that everyone else is. Look at, they're miserable. They're losing money. And so I think that was the first big jump or leap of faith that I personally did with other peers and then never look back. Um, yeah, I could talk hours just about the experiences that we did at that organization, and that was where I was until I moved to Arizona in 2013. So what kind of construction did you guys seek? I mean, how were you getting jobs at well, we were Well, we were in an area that was what I would consider um, rural compared to, you know, we didn't have the Phoenix Metro. We were two mm -hmm. and a half hours away from Minneapolis, St. Paul. So when you're a general contractor in a community like that, it'd be like maybe Flagstaff or Prescott or Payson. You had to be able to remodel a garage build a school, build a church, um, build a $2.5 million house, um, do all the horizontal, um, you know, all those kind of things. So you truly were a general contractor. Now, where we carved out niches was we went down to building science aspect at that time, which is, you know, I know you're currently um, hitting it hard on that, on mm -hmm. those grounds and aspects, but luckily um, my partner and one of my mentors um, had a strong background in with the USGBC, um, Lead for Homes program, all that kind of stuff. So we were exposed to building science before any of our competitors were, and we leveraged that primarily because cash was king at that time. 
well, who had cash? It was the successful business owners and people that saw the downturn coming and they hedged their bets. So we were working for people that wanted to save money and building science was a way of operationally saving it. Um, does that? It does because what's interesting is any savvy investor, anyone that's savvy, they know when the economy is great, you sell it all. And when the economy is bad, you build yep. because you can build for, you know, you're getting the value, yep. right? That dollar's going to go further. And so what you alluded to is that different, you differentiated yourself, right? You, you guys had different processes, communication, different talents, and not only that, but the building science side. So you become a sought after company in a recession where the savvy people want to hire you because you offer that service that no one else is. And then they know that their dollar's going to go farther, right? Because the wealthy people still have money, yeah. right? Um, so the interesting part of where you're segueing this in is that was the tactical part, you know, because you had to build a backlog of work. Mm-hmm. So what, what was the different, differentiator? And it was that. And we did that both on the commercial and the residential side. And then we got into another thing um, that was actually very tied to Arizona, which was best value uh, procurement or BVP, uh, PIPs, whatever they called it, that was a... Uh, originally started at Arizona at ASU. However, Minnesota was one of those states that had adapted it as well. And basically it was a an objective way of identifying subjective differences, if that makes sense. I know that's a tongue twister. But yeah, explain that a little bit. In yeah. essence, it's a way to qualify um, good potential over low bids because in the municipal market and taxpayer money, everything was low bid. Mm-hmm. And PIPs was a way to qualify how could the second lowest bidder, the third lowest bidder actually be the best value. I'm holding up my quotation fingers right now. And it's a way to to do that. And it, it's a very... So have you seen that be implemented by government oh, yeah. things where they've taken oh, yeah. the second... Oh, yeah. So how do they quantify that? I mean, what metrics or what are they using to, well, that's, to identify? The, the keys are to keep it blind, to keep it... Um, you have to go through a lot of training. Um, but once you get it, it's almost... It's almost like, how did we not think this way before? So for me, it was a very easy transition. So that was another thing that our organization was able to... Um, Pierce, because we're get, again, I'm back to 2008 to 2010 when everyone was going down. Where was money? Well, the government. Mm-hmm. A lot love of government. Love them or hate them, the government was handing out money. Yeah. Because you know they wanted to to pump the resources in their different Try economies. To build it back. Yeah. yeah. So that was one way that we were able to go in and get CM at risk, CM at agency jobs, uh, even GC with GMP type stuff. Now we didn't go after the big stuff because we were a mid-sized general contractor, but it was awesome. And I, it wasn't just getting the work, the attitude and the platform behind Best Value transcended into our business operations. So in other words, don't commoditize anything. Look at value and don't do it subjectively, but put criteria to it. And so we would bring our, our subcontractors into a large hotel room or you know, like a conference center and mm-hmm. explain the process and say, listen, we want you to succeed. This is how you're gonna differentiate yourself. Now we're not going to low bid to or cast out bids to 50 of you. We want five of you to be pre-qualified, and then each time you're going to do X, Y, and Z, and this is how we're going to track your performance. And so, as that started to take shape and form, we started to peel out pieces of that into our operations and into our leadership and into our business. So that's if you're following this conversation, mm-hmm. how you started. It's how did how did you do this into a business platform? Well. Again, we start with the tangible components of construction. We peel it back into operations, leadership, and all those kind of things. Now, again, uh, I'm going to be the first one to admit, 
I didn't have that planned, but it pivoted, we, we were able to pivot and iterate fast and in a nimble and humble aspect to just grow the organization exponentially overnight while everyone else was retracting. We blew our company up from 2000, basically eight to 2013. Yeah, and you built, so you're one of the few that actually opened in the recession. You built a successful company. You sold it. You moved here. But going back to it, so I'm a big sports guy, and I'm fascinated, right? I've, You know, I've, as I've gotten older and you become a business owner and you understand the, all the little things that go into running a business, right? And you see these different franchises, and some are successful all the time. And it's because they have good leadership. They have good understanding. They good training facilities, and they have good teachers and coaches and managers, right? And it's that process like you're talking about what separated you in the construction industry that everyone's almost on the same playing field, but what elevated you guys is these systems and processes and PIPs and different performance have. So now Evolve, you, you get to Phoenix, you know, you become a consultant, right? Based on that background. And so what made you move to Phoenix? Just a life change. Um, my wife and I were looking to make a change and our kids were at an age where we wanted to just explore. Um, live, you know, that old cliche. Got tired of the snow? Oh, you know, that too. <laughs> Not the snow. Got, you get tired of the 40 below for yeah. four months. <laughs> and it's it's just kind of depressing. I think we needed some vitamin D. It was time for a change. Um, the only the only negative thing was walking away from that organization that I just mm-hmm. got done talking about. I mean, those people were my lifeblood. I, if, if my body didn't force me to sleep, I would have worked 24-7. That's how much I loved my job. And that's... It's not the first time I love my job, but not to that level. I mean, there was nothing going back. I used, I used to always tell people, and I'm sure I've even told you, Brad, I felt like we created a Google-like environment in the construction industry in a very conservative Midwest, you know, little pocket. And then to see how everyone hated us at first and then tried to copy us at the end, that to me was the validation that we were on the right track. And then if you take out all those little experiences of there and start applying it to how you can be a good business person, um, to me that just set a platform of, okay, I now have the faith in, in myself to surround myself with other good people so we can repeat this. But not repeat it to the same level, repeat it at a better level. And I think that's where you and I are at right now in our conversations. You know, why are we doing this today? I think it's based on that platform. How do we pay it forward? How do we surround ourselves with other good people that have that vision? Maybe they don't have the experience to connect those dots. Let's help them connect those dots. Well, yeah, and you know, you've mentioned this many times, and I've seen it in my experience running a company, is that when you talk about surrounding yourself with good people, mm-hmm. you hire good people and you empower them, right? Yes. You empower them. You allow them to make the mistakes and to go run and manage you know, without the micromanaging because when people feel empowered or they're a decision maker, no matter what level of chain they're on, you know, your company is going to be more efficient, right? Because you're not having to manage every little thing. Uh, you know, so as you've, you know, you come to Phoenix, you're, you know, you, I, I know your background. You've been working for companies here in town. You've built them to be successful. Then you move on and you build another one and you build another one um, to where you are now. So now you're president of Blue Wave. So what are some of the things uh, that you're working on now at Blue Wave? Well, there's... We had, again, this. there's some humility in here. The, the first year of Blue Wave wasn't, wasn't the best. Um, we tried some things that didn't work. But back to your point, did we give up? No. Um, when our ex-CEO, who still is a great friend of ours today, he went back into an industry that he came, that he came from. He really set the foundation for what we're going on. So... Um, and what that, I mean by that is Blue Wave was based on 
uh, Blue Ocean Strategy. Um, for anyone that's read that, it, it basically, I don't go to the technical definition of it. In other words, if you look up the book review, it'll describe about how the commoditization of a market, how you try to get out of that Red Sea and go into a blue ocean. But in essence, you're trying to, again, how do you put value proposition out there and differentiate yourself from the customer? So Blue Wave's initial concept was provide a front-end capital or usually a capital or asset-based solution that makes you the de facto general contractor and then figure out a third play on the back end either for yourself or your ecosystem of some sort of recurring revenue. That could have been facilities management. It could have been helping their board um, be better, all those kind of things. Now, all that didn't work for us, but when we sat back um, about a year and a half ago or whenever it was, we decided that the core nucleus of that theory had proven itself well. We just didn't deliver on it well at the beginning. We were a little bit undercapitalized and tried to bootstrap it a little bit too much and it bit us and then but we retrenched and now we're back back in it but again it gets back to that value proposition and so really what I'm trying to do now is just double down on that and connect those dots both internally and externally and every time I talk to people in our industry I'm getting the feedback that it's there and people want it um, I can't define it in every thing because in every situation that's a little different um, if I'm dealing with a school, it might be help them find financing mm -hmm. um, as that front-end piece and then help them with the general contracting. And then on the back end, it might be, hey, maybe they need to bond out in three years. Okay, we'll find bond counsel for them, find bond financing then if they go conventional lending at the beginning. Um, I can't speak to how it would look in the residential arena, but, um, you know, it might, if you're... Well, we have that too. I mean, they may ask us, hey, we want to build a house and we don't know anything about it. So we give them value, right? We'll help them find a the lot. We'll put them with the right broker. We'll, you know, depending on their style and budget, we'll put them with the right architect, the right designer. You know, there's all these elements we could bring, you know, with our background. But, you know, one thing, you know, as you've been talking about when you started Blue Wave, so I think one of the misconceptions, because you're active on LinkedIn, you're active on social media, as are we, is that there's this portrayal that you know the business is just successful and it's great and it builds up and they don't realize the hard work right they think it's overnight and so what counsel would you give to a new business owner you know as you're starting a company um, because it is not an overnight success <laughs> for any company right so yeah. what advice would you give as you're um, you know starting a new company well you have to believe in yourself first um, knowing that your conviction is is right um, is paramount just having that belief and sticking with it because you're right. You're going to get more no's, nays, you're stupid, you're crazy than yeses. And that's the, that's the reality. The other, the other thing is just watch your top line and bottom line. Um, I think too many people just watch the top line and then all of a sudden they start spending. Look back to you were around in... in Again, that time that I alluded to before, I remember watching my competitors in 2006 to 2008 spend money on things that they shouldn't have been spending right. on, and then that excess. And then what happened? So, yeah. So cash is king, right? Yeah, cash is king. So just being humble and nimble and, and doing those things, but never, ever, ever forgetting the human capital aspect. Uh, that that to me has always been first and foremost is that even if you get busy, you are still always recruiting. Because if you think if you think your your shelf is set, 
then you've already failed. And I think you know that. I have. I, you know, it's funny. The last company I worked for, that was an issue. We, we were so inundated. We were so busy building Mono Lucia, this $300 million project, that you forgot to feed the pipeline, right? Yep. There was, and it stopped, and it came to a crashing halt. And so, you know, as, as an owner, you always got to keep seeking that pipeline, keep feeding the machine, and keep looking for the project from a year from now, two years, because in construction, these things take time. One thing that I think you mentioned that's very valuable for everyone listening is you talked about accountability. So as a business owner, you talked about when our first year wasn't as successful as we had hoped. You know, we had some hiccups, you know, with our strategies, but we sat down, we self-evaluated, we made ourselves accountable. So how, how do you make yourself accountable? How do you make clients accountable? Well, how do you make your team accountable? Well, c- communication and then benchmarking it. You have to put it in writing. I don't I don't think there's any. And we found that too. I mean, with a client, let's say, because I've had people say, well, my client won't make a decision. And, you know, we're trying to get this. And we've dealt with that to some extent. And we sat down and we said, okay, you know, if we need a paint color selected by X state, we put it in writing. We send it, you know, get in writing. We make that phone call. We talk to our clients, say, and, and we don't just send it to them, say, hey, you need to decide, JJ, by next Friday. We say, JJ, here's part of the process you can understand. This train's, moving at, this train's moving at full speed, right? If you make the decision Friday, here's A, B, and C, the chain of events that's coming. If you don't, here's how it's going to hold us up, and here's the cost involved. And when they understand that process, because they, they don't know our livelihood, they don't know our schedule, right? They have no clue, and so they think, oh, I can figure out pain in three months. Well, and, and I'm just using pain as an example, but we do have, you know, there's a cause effect, there's a critical path here, and so that communication laying it out, and I'm sure you've seen that. So, uh, you know, talk about job costing. You mentioned that, you know, how... Why is it important job cost? I, I think a lot of people don't even understand job costing, right? No. Looking at that profit line. Let, let me take your thing and spin it just a little bit because it, it there was a story that popped into my head. So back to best value and pips, one of the things that was effective with that is that everyone is accountable. And it isn't at the end of the it's not just at the end of the job, it's all the time. So there was there was this constant survey going on and it was pretty awesome because the owners and the architects and the engineers, not just the general contractors and everyone downstream, were always getting rated. Well, what do you matter? It's kind of like Yelp, right? Interesting. So if your clients are crummy clients, Yelp them. <laughs> I mean, not, not literally, but figuratively. So how do you put that in context? Well, a tool that I found is very effective is called a weekly risk report. Now, it doesn't look like... Um, doesn't look like anything special. It's basically everyone that's involved in the project, including the owner, including the designer, including anyone that has decision-making capabilities. You put it out in a public document, not private, a public document, so it looks like everyone's accountable. Because as a peer group, that's much more effective in the global place than it is just behind closed curtains. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you don't ever get vindictive with it or, you know, like that. But again, keep it objective, keep it tangible, and pretty soon it starts telling a story. So then when that, when you do have that situation, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, sorry if you're listening, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, but, you know, look it. For four straight weeks, you've been on notice that that paint color was due. Now you've affected it. Okay, sorry, I can't, I can't fix laziness. You know, you can only do so much. So that's... So it's organization is documentation, right. and I like that concept because instead of just... Maybe a uh, email to one person where it could get lost. You know, you have a public document now that everyone's seen on the team, right? right? So everyone's accountable to each other, and it's a lot more difficult to hide behind it. 
for everyone's accountable. So like on BuilderTrend for you on one of your large homes, yeah, it'd be a great platform to just, it's a very simple one pager that's easy to read in under three minutes. Because look, the painter's gonna go to his section, the client's gonna go to his section, your superintendent's gonna go to his section, or well, he'll probably look at all of it. But you know what I mean. And then they know, hey, that's, that's my accountability. And then it's the communication, it's reminding them, it's softening the blow. It's helping it them is understand softening it. the blow. Because yeah, you're not, this isn't for punitive. No. It's, it's Jerry Maguire. Yeah. Help me help you. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, we're essentially married to our clients, right? For a duration, and it's communication, just like any marriage or friendship, you know, for it to be effective. You have to communicate, you have to talk about the good things and the bad things. So, you know, as, as we come to a close here, JJ, and you've provided such valuable insight, you know, what, uh, how do you see continuing ed- education? What are, in, in your experience, what have you seen that has helped you better your brand, you know, better your programs and efficiencies, or just building science knowledge? Well, all of it. Uh, I am a new believer, and I'm late to the game, but I'm a podcast listening junkie right now because I used to do more traditional reading, and I just don't have time. Yeah. So I'm trying to go back to my own advice earlier on in our conversation. And I'm amazed at what I can get for content in podcasts while I'm walking the dog at five in the morning while, you know, you look like you work out all the time, so you can do it when you're working out. Just those those off times. And I don't like multitasking, because multitasking, everyone uses that as a cliche, it doesn't work. <laughs> but everything. And uh, you and I had talked about this before, so I kind of try to think about this, because I know we'd be trying to talk to some listeners about this. And... There was one piece of advice I got a long time ago that I, I think has has proven very well. I will go back about ten years, and I start studying. Now remember, you and I are deep into construction now, and I took advice of someone to look at other industries. And what did I dive into? Logistics, because I had a buddy that was managing a logistics company, and I'm like, what does this have to do with construction? I learned more about supply chain delivery, laydown areas, all those little things that help my construction companies and my job sites get leaner, meaner, and, and I beat the competition, much like you taking the advice of getting cleaner job sites. That was one. Another one was take a cue from the medical industry. Why does the most established surgeon in the world still have to follow a protocol of checklists yeah. so that they don't mess up? Same Even as airplane pilot. They're all the same. Airplane. Yeah. yeah. Those little things, they seem so benign, but are so impactful to what we do. So take those kind of learning things and just keep applying it. Uh, I love going to things non-construction related when you have the opportunity and learning. I don't know about you, but I walk out of there and I feel like I just downloaded a million units of Wikipedia in my brain. Now, you don't, but you just feel like you've consumed so much content that now you can go back to what we were talking about earlier in in the podcast was how do you give value proposition connecting all those dots? That one time when, a cus- when you're in front of a customer and they go, well, how do we do this? Hey, uh, I don't know the answer to the, to the nano degree, but I have a general concept, blah, blah, blah. What do you think about that? That's a great idea, JJ and Brad. Can you help us get the solution? Yes, give me 24 hours and I'll get back to you. So... I, don't, I, just, I think you've provided a lot of value there because, you know, as, as you were talking about that, you know, I've, I've been asked that question and it's like, okay, well, where do you sign up for something? But I think it's more than that. I think it's putting yourself out there. I mean, you talked about podcasts, which I love podcasts and I use a lot of my commute time, you know, yeah. calls and podcasts and workout time and other things. 
you know, I'm doing the yard work, I'm on the lawn, listening to podcasts, <laughs> right? Um, but what's interesting is you talked about um, SOP, which, you know, you talked about processes, what makes a pilot successful, what makes a doctor successful, that they have a procedure in place, right? And they have a list that they go through. And one of the things that I found for continuing education, so I was fortunate to be included in a Builder 20 group. And oh, it's yeah. a group that we meet twice a year and we audit each other and we go through financials and we go through building practices. It's that continuing education we meet twice a year to kind of refresh in our skills. And what's amazing is one of the builders in our group, he, you know, they build in the Northeast and he's in his 60s, super successful guy. And he said, hey, Brett, here's my 180-page <laughs> SOP that I built. You know, that he gives me. And now we can edit it for our company to get those systems. So I think there's so many avenues as you're networking, yeah. as you're on social media. You and I met through social media. We did. We built this relationship. You know, I've seen how social media has allowed me to now connect with some building science guys that have helped us bring value to our architects and clients. And so through podcasts, through social media, through networking, you know, visiting other industries, all these different avenues, you know, anybody can become a better business owner. And you and I... I've talked about this before. If you give more than you take, you will learn more than you than you will ever. My favorite quote: "Generosity precedes prosperity." Right? Perfect. Every time. Yep. And I was taught that when I was like first out of college. I was like 24 years old, and a sales guy who was super successful sales guy taught me that. And look at us. Well, not you, but I'm old now. <laughs> and uh, you go back if I was 20 some or 30 something, I would have said, "Yeah, whatever." And now, it's so true. But the more you give back and network and you're building these systems, like you're just going to build that brand, if you will. You're going to build that network. Well, JJ, I can't thank you enough for making time today. There's so much value brought. Again, so JJ, let our listeners know, how can they find you? JJ Levinsky, Blue Wave General Contracting. We're based in Chandler. Um, and if you can't find me, find Brad. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, we'll, Brad. Yeah, thank you. And we'll have a list. Uh, we'll put a link out. Uh, we'll we'll put some hashtags in there and uh, some handles so they can reference you on LinkedIn and throughout. And we're excited to uh, continue this relationship. So thanks for making time today, JJ. Thanks again. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode two with JJ Levinsky. And stay tuned for next week as we release our episode with Mark Candelaria and we discuss business, entrepreneurship, and architecture. 